The COVID-19 pandemic has had an enormous impact on the New York courts, just as it has impacted every institution and every enterprise. But the courts can't simply close down or hit the pause button. A pandemic doesn't stop crime. It doesn't prevent domestic violence. And the courts must continue to provide vital services to society. Although the range of those services was certainly limited, and matters that could wait were put on hold, the New York State court system never shut down. Not for a day, not for an hour, not for a minute. Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York courts. I'm John Carr. The Historical Society of the New York Courts is producing a day-by-day, and in some cases minute-to-minute, account of how the court system responded to the coronavirus challenge. It is examining the logistics of how the courts function, who made it possible for the courts to function, and the technologies that enable the unified court system to dispense justice at a distance. The Historical Society is partnering with the courts to memorialize from video recorded interviews with court staff and judges just how the court system responded to this pandemic. Today I'm pleased to have as our guest Marilyn Marcus, Executive Director of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. Marilyn, thank you for your time. What is the overarching goal of the Dispensing Justice at a Distance project? Well, good to be here with you today, John. Uh, the, the Historical Society of the New York Courts has entered into a partnership with the New York Courts to record the experience of judges and court staff as we move through this historic time. I do feel that the Historical Society is uniquely qualified to carry this out. Uh, we, are, we were, as you know, founded by former Chief Judge Judith Kay with the mission of protecting and promoting the legal history of the state. We're living through unprecedented times, so I don't have to tell you that. And I can imagine no more important mission for us than to make a record of the court's experiences as we navigate what I can only call these uncharted waters. We can only imagine what went into the planning from Chief Judge Janet Fiore and Chief Administrative Judge Larry Marks on down the chain of participants through towns, villages, counties, and the state levels. Courthouses across the state went from open to shut with virtually no notice and yet never really shut down, did they? Never. How did that? No, I don't know. How did it happen? It's an important story in our democracy. I think that will resonate down the down the years to come. So, if just to get dive into the project a little bit, um, the project, like like you said, is going to be called Dispensing Justice from a Distance, and it aims to reach courthouses across the state. Um, I got to work with the two deputy chief administrative judges. Judge Silver Downstate and Judge Caruso Upstate, um, and uh, and with their help, made selections of judges that represented a, a good cross section. Uh, our goal is to reach a wide range of benches with really boots on the ground uh, experiences where they intersected directly with the public. Uh, The list is still being developed and at present include J. 
judges sitting in various levels of criminal and civil courts, as well as more specialized courts, family, court housing, circuits, and then the problem-solving courts that are directly in the communities. As this is, has developed, it's become clear to me, at least, that we, we need to move beyond the judges in the interview process and talk to court clerks, court officers who uh, dealt directly with the public and continue to do so uh, with all the issues involved with safety and social distancing that comes from that. Really, they are our frontline workers here. Um, also, tech staff, and I'd like to talk a little later with you about their role, which has been totally amazing. And then everybody who makes up a, a court proceeding, court reporters and interpreters. Um, we expect to interview administrative judges at all levels, from supervising a single court to administering the entire court system. We, we will do interviews with the, excuse me, two deputy, deputy chief administrative judges I mentioned. But then I'm really proud to say that our current president, Jonathan Lippman, who, John, you know well, is, is the uh, former chief judge of, of the state, um, he plans to interview both the chief judge and the chief administrative judge at the top of the chain so that we'll really have umbrella coverage from top down. And I think it takes all of these participants to paint a picture of how the transition from in-person to remote was carried out. That sounds fascinating. Now, now Judge Lippman will interview Judge DeFiori and Judge Marks. Um, is he going to do all of the interviews? No, that's his one and only interview in this process. Um, and um, the, we are reaching out pretty broadly for our interviewers, but my, my focus with, an in, with the interviewers was to reach the younger set, younger lawyers, younger historians, um, because they are the ones that are going to be around 30 years from now who will have this historic perspective. And I think t taking part of it now will make it very alive to them and will keep this, uh, keep this alive for the generations to come. Now, um, there's obviously a New York historical angle here, but I wonder if it goes beyond that. I mean, as we all know, New York was hit early and hit hard by this pandemic. And for the past several weeks, things have been going in the right direction. Several other states are on the opposite direct trajectory, and you know maybe they got off a little easier in March and April than we did, and now they're seeing dramatic spikes. Do you think there's an immediate benefit for other states to see how a large court system like ours, you know, one of the largest in the country, certainly, um, handled this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think just as Governor Cuomo proved to be a model for other states as we went so hard and so fast as really the first, one of the very first states to be hit and, and went through the, the phases with him, I think that our court system can be a model for other court systems uh, because of the early start. We, we, were, we were at it instantly in March. Um, and one of the things that we'll do, I could talk a little more about this later, is publicize this, get it out there as, as, far, you know, as far and wide as we can. So, yeah, 
I, I hope that it's going to prove to to be that that sort of a project here. As far as getting the word out, what does that mean? Um, coordinating with the American Bar Association or the National Center for State Courts and organizations of that nature? Is that what you mean? Yes, that's exactly the types of organizations. I would even think the National Archives may be interested in this as a as an, a, sort of a, a full project. And so why don't I tell you a little bit about the project itself? And oh, please do. It's, please it's, do. It's, it's, thanks. Because I think that the, it's the historic value comes out when when you can look at this as a whole, as as opposed to in, individually. So I talked about the fact that we're going to be interviewing judges. I don't know how many that's going to be yet, but it's going to be a significant cross sampling. And then both, as I said, both at the uh, sitting level, at the administrative level, and then the staff that surrounds and supports them. So these interviews are going to be um, recorded uh, and videoed. Uh, and they, as I said, we'll have the young lawyers doing these interviews. I call them the young lawyers. They're not all that young, but they're younger than I am. Um, and, and so that's one piece of it. We're, uh, we're also in the process of creating a timeline, and this is a really neat feature. Um, one of my staff people, Allison Murray, very cleverly has been developing this. It's a timeline of every single significant event that occurred from March going forward. It's certainly not done. We're, we're still moving through that timeline. Um, it will have all of the chief judges' videos uh, appropriately placed on it, all the different court orders and notices uh, that went out at the time, um, and clips from the interviews by the judges and court staff will appear at appropriate places from their interviews on the timeline. So it's, it's going to be a, um, uh, an interactive, uh, take a quick look, you know, quick overview of what happened uh, spot. And then it's going to be, uh, surrounding it will be all this array of interviews, which once we get deeper into this process will decide how best to be arranged categorically so that it's most accessible to the public. Do you know so when... that's our idea. Do you know, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful idea. Do you know when it will be available? No, I, I truly can't tell you. We're at the beginning of the process. Uh, we've done uh, about five, and we've probably scheduled another five or so now, but um, we're not ready. I mean, I don't think the the court system and, and, and the country is ready to be done with this project. I think it's, it is important to see how we went remote, how the court system went remote, as it is to see how the court came out of, out of this process. So I can't say yet, but um, I can say we're spending a lot of time devoting time and that the court, the judges, everybody in the court system has been wonderfully supportive of this. And, you know, I, it, it, it started as kind of a germ of an idea um, that I took to one of my trustees, Dennis Glazer, um, and as well as our two past presidents. Do, do you know uh, Al, Al Rosenblatt? As of course. Well? Of course, you, you know 
Littman, but do you know El Rosalo too? Oh, certainly. Yeah, and uh, he was very much a part. He's he's our past president, and Judge Littman is the present. Past president and, and co-founder, as I recall, Judge Rosenblatt. And is our founder, along with Judge Kay, and is continues to be my strong support that I so often turn to. He's a true Renaissance man and is busy writing a book now uh, about the um, a wonderful moment in our court's history, the Lemon Slave case. Uh, so he's busy and, and active as ever. And through that, that's, I was placed in Judge Silver's hands, who was terrific. He was enthusiastic about the project and its importance and um, he's been providing me with judges downstate and then I got to really have the pleasure to speak to just about all of the 10 district administrative judges uh, who selected judges that represented a good cross-section in their particular district. And we're looking for, in addition, you know, I sort of talked about the array of courts we're looking at, we also are looking for diversity in the judges because I think that that impacts the way they were able to to deal with this process of going remote. So gender is, is important, but age is probably even more important. We're looking for uh, diversity in, in race and culture and ethnicity, just a full range of our judges. Uh, and. Uh, just a word about our the, our tech staff, the, the technology staff of the court. I think it's it's just interesting to think about what happened and and then to begin to understand what was involved here. So the courts were going about their business in March, and uh, with absolutely no notice, as we all know, uh, there was a lockdown around middle of March. We're told to, uh, Cuomo told us we needed to stay home, social distance, and begin to deal with this crisis. Well, you can't shut down the courts. That's not possible. So what do you do? All of the people who were, uh, who are associated with the courts and work with the courts needed to receive remote access. They needed to receive laptops. So tech got out laptops to everybody. Well, then they had to train them how to use it. So they trained them. Then they had to train the judges uh, how to hold uh, virtual hearings and uh, immediate, uh, uh, immediate arraignments. How did they do it? They did it. They were trained to do it. And in the process, the court never stop functioning. That's the thing that's emerging to me as I listen to these recordings, how phenomenal that the court never stopped functioning. Um, and I think that we should also remember that as well as this amazing uh, feat of technology, courthouses, many more, I was very surprised to learn how many courthouses remained open through this entire process. They are heroes. Um, they remained open with a skeletal staff. Uh, they created virtual courtrooms within the courthouses for mostly those, um, those parties coming to the courts that didn't have 
uh, Wi-Fi that they weren't able to, um, they weren't otherwise able to to reach the court. So so it was kept open for them with these skeletal crews. They were uh, brought into a virtual courtroom with a big screen, and they were able to be heard. And this was very poignant. So far, we haven't moved in, into many areas like tenant uh, housing courts and tenant issues, and but we have spent some time with family court, and it was very poignant the way uh, it, it operated with family court because I think, as many of us know, reading the newspapers, um, that uh, that abuse, domestic abuse, has been rampant. Uh, people are in. There, there's more drug use, there's more drinking, there's no way for uh, people to escape. And so children and um, partners in, in, in domestic situations are being abused. Many of them don't have access to family court. Um, I understand many family court proceedings are held without counsel pro se. And uh, so what to do? These people came, knocked on the courthouse doors, were admitted, had their papers filed, and were taken to these virtual uh, court rooms, and uh, justice was served. So very um, meaningful work was being done at all times. You mentioned the, uh, the efforts to provide technical assistance to the judges, and um, I know there is currently a grant-funded project within the Office of Court Administration to provide additional training to attorneys and litigants on how to how to participate in a, a virtual hearing. I mean, that's not uh, something necessarily common knowledge. And you also mentioned uh, access to justice. And on a good day, access to justice is a, a challenge. Um, yes. And these aren't good days. Um, and not everybody has a computer. Not everybody has a smartphone. No, not everybody knows yeah. how to use Skype for business. And I, I, I'm glad to hear that we have provided some sort of a, a mechanism for people to, to achieve justice, even if they cannot, they don't have a technological wherewithal to do it. Me too. It was a real, from what I understand and I'm learning, it was and continues to be a real safety net. And I think that the bar associations have a big job here in educating lawyers about about this as well. So I'm, I'm glad to know that the court is also involved in this process because I do believe a lot of lawyers have difficulty with the, uh, with the process, hearing, losing connections, all kinds of things. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture that it was flawless, but the picture that is emerging was, was all the effort that went into continuing the process, even if it was, if, if it had its stops and starts, it was a process that never shut down, and that is tremendously impressive to me. Where are these interviews taking place? Are, are they uh, being held in your offices in, in, uh, in White Plains? Uh, the beauty of technology, Don, right? <laughs> um, we are using Skype. Skype is the official platform that the court uses. It has a lot of security features to it, and so, and we're part of the court system in that sense. So we're using the technology offered to us. And 
we were able to enhance it a little bit so that these recordings that we're doing are, um, uh, they, well, they're all videos, and they will be on a screen, a split screen. You'll see the young interviewer, the youngish interviewer on one side, and you'll see the judge on the other. And, and the, the questions that will be asked um, concerning the, this whole process will be pretty regularized because the idea was to ask the same questions and get lots of responses. So, but each one will go off in its own direction. So that is uh, what is the method we're using, and then we do whatever editing is necessary to these recordings, uh, send them to the, the parties involved to make sure they're comfortable, send them to the court to make sure the court is comfortable, and then ultimately, we're not there yet, but ultimately we'll start putting them up on the website uh, along with this timeline that, that I described. Uh, and that's really the process. And, and I think uh, you and I had talked a little about it. One, one of the really nice things is that this is costing the court system, which is certainly in need as all public institutions are right now, uh, this is costing the, the court system nothing. We're using the existing technology. Everything is being handled by historical society staff uh, and um, and working together with the court so that it's a product that they're happy with. And uh, that that's how that's how we're doing this. So this is not costing the court system any money. Not a dime. Wonderful. Let's hope that the uh, future generations who view this uh, view this from a historical perspective and not because they need to replicate it. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Isn't that the truth? And and one of our jobs, I think, not right, you know, not now. We have to wait till we finalize it and design our website pages for this and really get it up and going. But then I think a big job we have, is, and you you know all about this, John, is how to how to market it, how to get it out there to the public. One of the nice things with uh, videos we found, and the Historical Society uses this a lot, is that we host our videos on YouTube and Facebook and then promote them to, through all the various social media platforms, the, the flavor of the month, I suppose. They seem to change so often. But YouTube and Facebook has been an amazing way for us to get our content out to the public. And instead of having a, a live program where we may be uh, have 200 or if we're lucky 300 people we now have thousands of people viewing this uh, these videos that, that they find interesting we did a, uh, a, a webinar on the 1918 pandemic that had uh, maybe 4,000 people we did a podcast with uh, Judge Rosenblatt and Dennis Glazer on the Lemon Slave case that's still drawing people and it's over 7,000 views. So I can only imagine what kind of viewing we'll get when we can uh, work to, to promote the, this project as well as just get the project down into the recordings. I, I suspect you will get uh, a substantial uh, number of views. Oh, Marilyn, thank you for doing this project, and thank you for your time. And I, I wish you great success with it, and I, I'm eager to see the finished product. Oh, John, I consider you.
you were a collaborator in many things as, as you promote the, uh, the court system. And, and it's a pleasure to be here with you now, to talk to you now. And, uh, and, and I'll keep you up to date on, on how we're doing on this. Please do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Amici. You find all of our recent podcasts on the Court Systems website at www.nycourts.gov, and you also find a transcript of each interview. If you have a suggestion for an Amici podcast, let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.